0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about European defence. It is almost six decades since the first attempt at creating a European defence community Began and then failed. In fact, before the European Union itself existed, and every decade since then, people have come together and tried to push European defence forward in different ways. The most recent example of this is the much heralded launch of Pesco, which, according to my colleague Ulrich Franke, is an impotent guerrilla in Zab. Is it Zabreken Zoo? But it's also the name for Permanent Structured Cooperation, which is uh, an idea for a pioneer group to come together that meets certain capabilities as laid out in the Lisbon Treaty to take European defence to its next level. And as well as Ulrike Franke, who's a policy fellow in our Berlin office, we are very lucky to have Nick Whitney, a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who was also the first head of the European Defence Agency. And I think in that... uh, in that role, was one of the the intellectual fathers of of PESCO. Not the guerrilla, but the Permanent Structure Corporation. (laughs) Um, So this has now finally gone from being a twinkle in Nick's eye to being an actual policy uh, um, initiative and uh, was greeted with uh, a lot of enthusiasm by different governments and referred to by the President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, as uh, the sleeping beauty coming to... Oops, ending um, her sleep. So enough uh, by way of florid introductions. That was my telephone. Um, but uh, I hope it wasn't Juncker complaining about, uh, about the guerrilla uh, um, <laughs> analogies. Um, but anyway, um, why don't we go straight into the discussion. Uh, Nick, you've been working on this for a very long time. Do you want to say a bit about what uh, PESCO is... Uh, what the initial idea was, uh, and what was actually launched by European Defence Ministers and and blessed by the President of the European Commission.
1: Sure, thank you, Mark. Um, As we all know, um, Europe is about bringing member states together and is never happier than when it can proceed um, all at the same pace, uh, by unanimity, everybody moving forward together. Um, But that has become, in various spheres, increasingly problematic as the Union has grown to getting on to 30 member states. And this was recognised in the Lisbon Treaty, um, which, of course, was finally ratified, came into force 10 years ago, 2007. And it made, in particular, provision in the defence sphere for a subset of member states, the ones who are particularly serious about defence, the ones who are particularly keen to push forward defence integration, to form, as you've suggested, a sort of pioneer group or a, a hardcore, as the French would have referred to it, or a little group of, of leaven in the lump, a ginger group, whatever analogy you, you a want. A band of brothers <laughs> forging ahead. Um, not exclusively because the whole idea was that um, these guys would would set off and show what was possible in terms of joint projects and integration and then as others who had been less enthusiastic initially looked and saw what was happening and put up their hands and said, we'd like some of that as well, then they would be welcomed into the group. Um, The group was to be uh, selected on the basis of... um, Military uh, of member states whose military capabilities fulfill higher criteria. Uh, That was never specified in the treaty, but um, it sounds to me, if you're talking about higher criteria, that rather sort of analytical truth, that is less than half the member states. Um, And they were going to make more binding commitments to each other with a view to the most demanding of missions, the sort of
0: missions that actually people go and shoot each other. So the analogy was basically the euro, where... You set a set of clear criteria which would separate the sheep from the goats and allow everybody to to get to a higher level.
1: I believe that analogy was exactly what was in the treaty drafters' minds. Um, This was a sort of Euro-defence scheme. Well, the second part of your question is what have we got, and what we have got is a travesty of any such arrangement. We have already 23 of the 28 member states saying we're in, Um, everybody expects that by the time this thing is finally ticked off by the summit in December, um, two more will have found ways to to say we're in, we meet higher capabilities, and we're up for the more demanding commitments. And the exceptions only being UK and Denmark, two long-standing opt-outs, and and Malta. But it does mean that part of this pioneer group who fulfil higher military capabilities and want to take on the most demanding military missions are Luxembourg, Cyprus. So essentially, the pioneer model has been quietly abandoned. Um, and uh, everybody, everybody effectively is to join in. And um, Ooh, instead of nice. sheep and goats, um, it turns out we're all sheep. <laughs> all will have prizes.
0: Rika, you're sitting in Berlin where the inclusivity, I think, has been one of the bywords of the German approach to PESCO. There was a big debate for many months between Paris and Berlin, with Paris wanting to have tougher criteria and wanted to have a focus on operational effectiveness, and Germany that was pushing for a more inclusive approach and was against uh, leaving too many behind. Um, can you tell us a bit about how it's viewed from there? Do they share Nick's um, uh, slightly damning verdict on, on what's uh, achieved? Was that what they were trying to do anyway? Or was this only something which uh, the German government was uh, was rhetorically committed to rather than practice? And also, maybe, if uh, if you have uh, some time, or maybe we'll go back to Nick for that, it'd be good to know what the criteria actually are that people are, are kind of living up to and what they should have been.
2: Right, so... I am not yet as old and as cynical <laughs> as Nick. Um, so I would actually make the opposite argument and say that the fact that pretty much all member states are willing to join PESCO is also a sign that they are all willing to do more. Yes, not everyone can be avant-garde, but in and of itself, I think that that's a good sign. And that's very much how this is being seen from Berlin. I mean, it's not as if uh, the notification on PESCO got loads of attentions around here. There were basically um, a few newspaper articles that it was happening. But, you know, as I've wrote in this piece that you referenced, most Germans are more likely to have heard about the PESCO gorilla in the Saarbrücken Zoo than um, the, the PESCO military or defense union. Um, nevertheless, I, I think people here are, are cautious, cautiously uh, optimistic. Um, there is a sense that, more people want to do something. This is a step in the right direction. This is going to help to come up with projects that hopefully will strengthen European capabilities. And I mean, it, it, it certainly can't hurt. I mean, basically that's, that's the line here. Um, if uh, one of the 47 projects that are currently on the table in PESCO amounts to anything, well, that's one project more than we had before. Um, I I think that's not too bad.
0: (laughs) So what are the criteria that Germany is particularly pleased to have got people to sign up to?
2: Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether it's so much about the criteria. I mean, the criteria at this point in the notification are very vague. Um, I mean, one of the things, of course, is uh, increasing the fence budgets. Uh, and that's something everyone is, is happy with. But then again, it doesn't even reference the 2% goal. It just says increasing defense budgets. And that's something everyone is going to do. So um, I, I don't think the it's so much that about the many criteria. Many countries have
0: been happy to have for, for, for many years whilst cutting their no, defense exactly. spending.
2: <laughs> well, I, I I don't think we're going to go into cutting at this point. But yeah, I mean, just, you know, one euro more is already increasing. So I don't think that that means much. I don't think it's so much about the criteria that people uh, sign up to. I think it's more about showing the willingness. And then there's a real hope that, yeah. again, one of the 47 projects or one of the 10 that they want to agree to until the end of the year may result in something. Well, that's um, a slightly
0: you know. different approach from Wolfgang Schäuble's to the conversion criteria on Maastricht.
2: It's not so much <laughs> about <laughs> the criteria, it's
0: more about having the Greeks taking part. <laughs> well <laughs> So maybe that shows that it wasn't being taken as seriously as the as the Euro process.
2: Well, I mean, yes, come on, this is Germany. Of course, we take money more seriously than the military. I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to any of us.
1: The criteria are not demanding, because the criteria don't exist at all. The criteria have been totally ignored in this document. What they have done is produced 20. They've looked at commitments, the more binding commitments. And they've produced 20 commitments, which are either extant things that people have been saying for years they would do under the common security and defence policy, or within the context of the EDA.
0: The EDA Um, is the European Defence Agency, which Nick, would you want to say what it does?
1: Well, it does this sort of thing. It, um, It tries to get European member states to come together, discuss their military needs, work out where they might have common ground and could get better value for money by pooling their resources and efforts, and then provides them with project management assistance to bring projects to fruition, which um, well let me take two points. One is that there are these commitments left, which are I mean, they are laughable. Um, there is let me see. Let me see.
0: Nick's going what, through the, 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 um, the, what's it called, the notification of permanent structure. There are 20 of them, and
1: one of them reads, commit to strive for an ambitious approach to dot, dot, dot. And then there are, there are various other commitments where um, people say they will do this without prejudice to, or without prejudice to any constitutional constraints um, they will run their battle groups um, according to NATO standards. Actually, I think that's a small advance. The first time people have said they ought to be run by NATO standards rather than simply... Um... Anyway, um, but no-one's going to inspect the battle groups. The battle groups are going to remain subject to national certification to show how far... I mean, these are, these are valueless. Ulrika is right that in the course of putting together at PESCO some 40 projects... I think we're talking single sentences here as to what a project might be, have been have been thrown forward as ideas, and one or two or three will emerge by the end of the year as things that are likely to happen. But that will be a PESCO badge applied to something that has been in the works for a long time. Germany has been tremendously keen that there should be a European medical command. That's a good idea. It will happen. It will get a PESCO badge. It would have happened without PESCO. And... If I may be allowed to um, just make one further um, cross point about all this, um, this is not actually um, this, this is not actually just sort of neutral in terms of oh well, it was a nice idea. it might have had teeth it didn 't does it matter let 's move on. An enormous governance structure has been created over this a whole new paper factory usine agaz, as the French like to say, has been created to support this so that people in Brussels who might otherwise have been giving a bit of attention to trying to actually find new projects and make them work will have to write annual reports on on how people are progressing and how they aren't, um, which will have no value. Um, And we are simply perpetuating the, the... Traditional habits of European defence of people sitting around talking and agreeing to do things
0: which never actually happen. So can we maybe? um, Because you know, I I love the way that the two of you seem to be incarnating (laughs) the German versus the French approach almost. Nick, you you might be Brit, you might have a British passport, (laughs) but I feel I could be listening to uh, to this in the language of Molière. So maybe we should take it a bit further. One of the really interesting things about those two things is this question about going big versus small. And um, maybe I'll sort of try and lay out some of the reasons why people... uh, Or maybe Nick should do that, actually. Why would it be better if you only had, say, five or six or ten member states rather than 23 at the beginning?
1: Because when you have a community which is effectively the same community as work together in the EDA, which is all member states less one, or the community that work together in CSTP, which is also all member states except one, you then get sucked back into the standard council procedures and the the dead hand of unanimity which grips um, European defence and has so far.
0: So that means that you can only proceed at the pace of the slowest... that the convoy can only proceed at the pace of the slowest ships...
1: I haven't seen the letter that the Poles circulated the day after signing up to PESCO, but I'm told it puts a Polish interpretation on what it is that they committed to and their understanding of what PESCO, indeed European defence, is about, which is essentially
0: not European except in a NATO context. Okay. So, maybe um, to can I maybe just throw in a few other ideas that I would have thought maybe reasons for having small? So, one is as you said, um, you, it, you have the veto problem so that you go at the pace of the, the least capable and the least willing to do anything. Another, presumably, is that um, there have been big problems with uh, NATO-EU cooperation because Cyprus is in the EU and Turkey's in NATO, so they kind of block any contact between the two. If you had European defence without Cyprus, that might have allowed NATO-EU cooperation to go forward. Thirdly, um, the whole idea of of, uh, of pioneer groups is that um, you can set tough standards, which other people have to uh, do, go to quite great lengths to meet. So, if you had said you had to spend two percent, how many member states would be would be in Pesco if you had to meet two percent defence spending? Uh, ooh, four or five, depending on how you do the math. Run the math. <laughs> So, so the others would have had to spend quite a lot of money to get in. What are the other sorts of things that, that you could have had if, you'd, if you really wanted to change people's Well, I mentioned that
1: um, the only commitments here were extant commitments, which yeah. have been around for a while. Um, and one of, example of that is the commitment that everybody should strive in the direction of trying collectively across Europe, not individually, to spend 20% of defence spending on... Uh, in investment, that is, equipment and research. So who, how many countries would you have got if you'd done that? But my, the point I was going to make was that part of the set of EDA commitments, which are now 10, 10 years old, also had a commitment in there, a figure for how much people should aspire to spend together. I think the figure was one-third of research and technology money The aim was to try to spend that together on collaborative programmes, pooling of efforts and resources. Well, that is nowhere to be found in here. So there's less in here than there's been on the table for a number of years. Uh, And you're quite right uh, with the examples you give of what's the advantage of a small group. And if you're talking about a, a, a procurement project, if you want to, as the French and Germans have said separately they already want to do, which is build the next generation of fast jets together, you don't want... 23 people round the table. When you discuss what the characteristics of the next generation of fast jets should be, you want the French and the Germans, and you want maybe three or four others because these are the countries who will make a serious financial or technological contribution to it.
0: Okay. So, Rika, what are the what are the reasons? Your version of the reasons for having uh, a more inclusive PESCO with more people round the table?
2: I think the I think the German uh, point of view would very much be as it usually is namely it's not so much about the military uh, cooperation capabilities and more about the political signaling and the political cooperation i mean this for instance take poland i know that lots of germans were very happy to have poland on board and it was seen as a very good sign because of course relationships with poland are difficult at the moment but i know that outside of germany a lot of people thought if I'm not misquoting Nick, uh, including Nick, that having Poland is actually problematic because they're basically in to slow it, and this really depends very much on what you yeah, want to.
0: So that's n- number one is is basically creating a sense of European solidarity. What are the other reasons for inclusiveness? I
2: think that's number one till till ten. I think that's I, that's really what this is what this is very much about.
0: Well, maybe I could throw some more in as well. Um,
2: Actually, I wanted to respond to your, to one of your um, keeping it small points, though, because I'm not really sure. I, I, I buy the NATO point that you mentioned. And this is something I hear a lot from the Brits I talk to and the Americans I talk to, well, if they know PESCO at all, um, that somehow it's it's problematic um, it, it, with NATO. You've got NATO countries, you've got non-NATO countries. But in and of itself, I mean, if PESCO works the way it's designed to work, this will help strengthen european nato allies and that's something nato wants i'm not really sure why
0: no no my my point on that though uh, and then i'll go back to some of the reasons why i'll try and help you out with your with your somewhat weak arguments in favor of inclusivity but before we do that my point about nato is not that it's undermining nato it's just that we have an absurd situation where nato and the eu can't actually talk about doing anything together even though most of the member states are the same and the main reason for that is because cyprus is in the eu so if you could come up with the european defense team which didn't include cyprus that would solve that problem instantly and there were lots of good reasons to do with capabilities and other stuff to exclude cyprus from this and i thought that was one of the main goals of pesco was just to get cyprus out of the room but maybe um, maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong about that.
2: You can't really put that in a notification document, though. No,
0: but you could set a criteria saying Greek Greek should not be one of the official languages, or you have to spend twenty percent of your R and D on on uh, on uh, on defence, or do pool projects, or like uh, uh, or or not have a territorial dispute with another NATO member, or something like that. Anyway. Um, I would have thought another big reason for for inclusivity, though, uh, Ulhika, would be that if you have everyone together, you can have access to EU budgets and institutions. And one of the big uh, enabling things for European defence has been the creation of the European Defence Fund. And so therefore having a kind of direct uh, line from... Pesco to the European budget would be would be a good thing, and the more member states that you are in there, the more likely you are to be able to get access to those resources. Was that not true?
2: Um, I uh, interesting. I, I mean, it, this is obviously this is part of Pesco. The the whole uh, the, the European Defence Fund, as you mentioned, um, is is something that is is being built and is, is growing, and of course the Pesco project very much hope uh, to get as much of that funding as possible. I'm not sure, however, maybe Nick knows more about this. Whether a slightly smaller Pesco group would be less likely to get that money. I don't think so. Um, yeah, maybe Nick knows more about that.
1: I think you're right about that, Ulrika. The, um, the, the European Defence Fund there is there to subsidise joint projects um, at the research and development stages, um, and there is a provision that there will there will be an extra large subsidy for projects that come forward with a Pesco badge. But whether that is lots and lots of PESCO members or, or three or four PESCO members I don't think will um, uh, matter too much. My expectation is that the projects that are put to the European Defence Fund will be small group projects because it's typically only small a small number of member states who are interested and have the resources and the capabilities and industrial capabilities to, to carry out serious amounts of research and uh, and development. It's an open question whether um, the offer of free bunts out of the European budget will actually um, be enough to get people to draw on the European Defence Fund because it will come with commitments. Uh, and its commitments will be to take a development project and move it forward into a real life capability project that produces equipment and fields it. And anything like that, which prompt which forces you to actually plan ahead and commit yourself for the future is something that member state defence ministries tend to fight shy of. They prefer to maintain their flexibility. Um, so we'll see how much take-up there is of the defence fund, but I hope I hope there is some, and I hope it does uh, encourage the birth of new projects.
0: Okay, so we had a pretty good sense so far of what was decided, why it's a damp squib, um, but... There are two more kind of things which would be interesting to think about. One is, uh, you know, what happens next? Um, how can European defence uh, be uh, fixed um, in spite of this? How much of a loss this uh, damn squib, PESCO is for people who believe in it? Um, and then also it would be good to think about what it means for the next wave of, of, of European integration more generally. Maybe we'll end with that question. So... Uh, in terms of fixing it, it looks to me like the French had already given up on it a while ago. They kind of had this long discussion with um, with the Germans about whether you had an inclusive or an exclusive PESCO. When it was clear it was going to become inclusive, they moved on to their next thing. Um, Emmanuel Macron made his big speech uh, at the Sorbonne where he laid out about 250 pressing ideas for, for the next wave of European integration. But one of the more eye-catching ones was this idea of, uh, of the European intervention force. Is that the kind of the next thing that, that our European defence um, fans are going to be? Is that the, the latest um, receptacle for hope now that PESCO has, has died, Nick? Um, it, it might be. I mean, it's not the,
1: it's not the only one. Um... As Ulrika says, I am old, but I, I, refute, I refute the cynical label. I'm just a frustrated idealist, so I am, I am casting round for further spurious reasons to hope that something will happen on European defence. And one of them is the European Defence Fund, and the other is quite simply the Franco-German Motor. And the Franco-German Defence Council in July did agree a list of impressive and necessary um, new capability projects which they would take forward together and I hope that over time we shall see those carried forward with other partners and no doubt given the PESCO badge um, so these are reasons for hope
0: the European intervention thing is so what's uh, its formal name the European intervention thing intervention. The I- EIT the EIT <laughs> European intervention
2: initiative
1: right okay so E-I-I.
0: sounds like Macron missed a, tr- a trick on branding he should have come to you first It with the EIT.
1: It certainly certainly caught the Germans on the hop. They didn't know what this was about. Um, Their first reaction was to say very firmly that this would be um, wrapped into Pesco. Um, Well, it isn't. Um, And assuming that the French don't give up on it, it seems to be something like trying to produce a kind of semi-standing force, a bit bigger than battle groups, which would be, you know, with different national components, which would be...
0: It's something like the battle group idea, I think. The battle group idea. Um, Do you want want to explain that for people who are not who don't don't have as many grey hairs or as much many scars on their backs? No, but what are what are because the idea of battle groups was that you'd have. Do you want to explain that for for non? I don't know if there are any left non European defence experts who are listening to us, but assuming they've got twenty minutes into this podcast and are still there, (laughs) twenty five minutes. (laughs) 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 What is the battle? What was the original idea of the battle group?
1: Every minute of every day since uh, for over the last decade, there has been a European force of approximately 1,500 men poised to, um, to deploy to some trouble spot and um, uh, put out the fires of, uh, of some sudden insurrection in Central Africa or whatever it may be. And the
0: call never came.
1: Strangely, the call has come in a muted form on several occasions. The call came from the UN to deploy to uh, Zaire the last time there was trouble in the the Congo, the uh, the Kivu province in the eastern Congo. And the battle group on duty was a a British and French one. And um, foreign ministers Miliband and Kushner looked at each other at the time and said, probably inappropriate. Um, the call could very well have come when the French decided to uh, intervene unilaterally in Mali in 2013. The call did come um, at the end of 2013 when, this, when the Central African Republic um, Uh, suddenly broke down into civil war and there was blood flowing in the streets that was a British battle group on standby so you can imagine what the result there was of uh, Britain flying off to mount a European operation the blood continued to flow until eventually the French themselves intervened Uh, so the battle groups have never been anywhere or done anything and I suppose the French motive here is to try to reinvent something which might actually work
0: So why would the European intervention thing? Succeed where the
1: battle groups have failed. You have exhausted my expertise, indeed my imagination. <laughs> you will have to find a French a
0: French interlocutor. Well, maybe, so, Rika, um, you go to France a lot. Maybe you, you've got some insights.
2: I, unfortunately, I don't have insights on your last question on why that should now uh, uh, work. Um, however, I wanted to comment on a few other things that were mentioned before. Um, I mean, first of all, of course, I'm I'm very sorry. Excuse me um, for having called Nick a cynic. Um, henceforth, I shall refer to you only as frustrated idealist. Thank
0: much you, better. Erica,
2: thank you. Um, uh, on the on the things that are going to get uh, the experts excited in, in the next few months or years. Um, I think, yes, I, it's, it's a defense fund on the one hand, but honestly, I think there's quite a lot of interest here in the projects that are being put forward um, through PESCO. Um, I, I I wouldn't discard this as these are things that would have been done anyway. I mean, you know, so far they haven't been done yet. So if it goes through PESCO and works through that, great. Um, so I think we should keep an eye on on whatever is being decided decided till then. Especially, I mean, and this brings us back to the question of why this should be as inclusive as possible. The whole um, pitch for PESCO always is this thing of, we spend um, X amount of money on the on defense, almost, well, not almost, but quite a lot um, more than China and Russia and, and, and quite a substantial amount. But where the Americans have, you know, three tanks, we've got 24, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard all of this. And of course, if you have an exclusive PESCO, you could actually come up with, common capabilities develop well, common capabilities that are then shared throughout the the union now yes a girl can dream i'm not really sure whether that's that's going to happen but again let's keep an eye on the projects there may be there may be surprises as to what comes out of them.
0: okay and well that's going to bring us more or less to the end of the pesco discussion but maybe i could ask the two of you how you think um, this will shape the next wave of European integration. If we take a step back from the technical PESCO bits, Nick, you mentioned a few area, reasons why you were optimistic too, the Franco-German motor. Does this make it more likely that there will be big steps forward in this uh, way? Does that create a kind of permissive environment for a foreign po- and defence policy-related leap forward in European integration, in your mind?
1: I think it's probably been seen around European capitals as the diffusing of what was turning into a rather awkward situation. I mean, Pesco and the separation of sheep from goats has always been, as I began this podcast by saying, slightly antithetical antithetical to the normal European way of going about things and always felt a bit awkward. And my reading is that it was embraced... Um, just after Brexit by uh, French and German foreign ministers as something that they would take forward to show that Europe was was, was on the move again and defence was one of the agendas where it was on the move again. And I think that probably as people began over the intervening 12 months to look in more detail at what it would involve... Um, There were advantages to doing PESCO and there were disadvantages and one of the disadvantages would be that it would be divisive because no one likes being told that they haven't got higher military capabilities, no one likes being told that this club is one which you can join but only later once you've um, improved your act a bit. So I, my reading of this really is that the French essentially gave up on it um, and that uh, the prevailing view was let's not rock the boat. This is not the time in Europe to create further divisions between a continent which is still in rather delicate condition. I read this, as, as you like, as a sort of... As a, a blow to flexible europe it's a it's a decision that flexible europe is not and multi-speed europe is not something that we want to push too hard just at the moment it's more important
0: to try to keep everybody inside the tent so nick nick is old and um but still optimistic in spite of uh, in spite of being mugged by reality so many different times rika i'm going to give you the last word uh, as a young person sitting in Berlin, the new optimistic capital of, of Europe.
2: Right. So I think um, that PESCO is very much thought to be a vision of a post-Brexit EU. Um, so, I mean, it's quite, it's quite interesting <clears throat> that um, so I, I've, I've just come back from uh, the Königswinter Defence Conference, the British-German Defence Conference, and PESCO was always kind of the elephant in the room throughout these debates. Because, of course, in the notification, there's a... Third-party clause, but it's relatively um, unattractive. Let's say it's basically not that attractive for a third party, namely the UK, um, to to join in this. So um, I think I'm, I'm not really sure whether I agree with Nick that this is saying no to multi-speed or, or flexible Europe. But I think this is um, um, Germany and other countries trying to present their vision of well, what can we do now as an EU of 27 that we couldn't do with. Britain and of course you know this is uh, defense and security so so I would I would read it that way
0: okay we got one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment Ulrika what's on your bookshelf at the moment
2: I have just finished a great book um George George Orwell's homage to Catalonia from 1938 and of course you know I picked it up because I thought Catalonia, um, things are happening there now. Let's see whether I can learn something from um, what, what was happening there during the Spanish Civil War. But in the end, I just found it to be a great uh, firsthand account of the Spanish Civil War from someone who fought in it um, for, for six months in uh, thirty six and thirty seven. So he wrote the book right afterwards. And what I found particularly interesting was that you can really see how uh, Orwell's experiences in that war Uh, shaped his views and informed his writing of 1984 when it comes to um, truthful journalism, uh, reporting, um, correct reporting, all of that. And that was absolutely fascinating. So highly recommend it. And
1: what's on your bookshelf, Nick? Well, I've just um, finished a a history of the Holy Roman Empire called called The Holy Roman Empire um, by a British academic called Peter Wilson, which is a monumental... Uh, magisterial work Um, and it's very fascinating I mean to to look at the you can't read this book without constantly seeing parallels between the the Holy Roman Empire and and today's European Union Um, beginning with the fact that uh, how the thing actually works is a deep mystery to all outsiders and indeed to many insiders and uh, how it sounds supranational, but actually has to work the whole time on a more consensual model. Therefore, how divergent, how how um, decentralized in practice it was in its operations. You had, it uh, may have been called a German empire, but you had... Uh, uh, the king of uh, Bohemia, the, the Czech Republic, uh, participating as one of the seven electors of the next emperor. You had Italians, you had Burgundians involved in it. Um, Sounds like Pesco. <laughs> it was quite, a, quite an inclusive form of Pesco. Um, well, quite a, a, an inclusive form of political entity and... Uh, Somehow it managed to survive and do, I think, a lot of good in Europe as a sort of stabilising factor for a thousand years um, and would probably still be going today if Napoleon hadn't wrecked it. So um, uh, there is perhaps there are perhaps hopeful lessons to the, for the EU as it goes through its many day-to-day travails.
0: Okay, and I'm going to recommend three amazing ECFR publications which in a way, I think provide a fascinating insight into the, the life cycle of an idea. So what I would, if you're interested in this topic, I would start with one of ECFR's very first publications, Nick Whitney's first publication at ECFR, in fact, which was called Re-Energizing Europe's Security and Defense Policy, published in 2008. And this was actually the first uh, concerted attempt at both making the case for uh, European defence, but also mapping out how PESCO could work, and is still uh, a, a an icon, a classic in the genre of PESCO literature. Um, second, after that, I would read Nick's uh, blistering attack on the current PESCO on our website. It's called um, EU Defence Efforts miss the Open Goal Again, where he lays out a forensic critique of what he sees as a great as a missed opportunity um, and if you're uh not totally suicidal at the end of those things and want to look <laughs> to the future i'd recommend a third publication on ecfr's website which is called the new european security initiative which rica was uh, one of the, uh, the the kind of driving forces behind which looks at how european security and defense is actually shaping up to be one of the kind of central integrative elements in a Europe that's feeling much more insecure about its role in the world um, against the background of Brexit and Trump, and I think provides lots of very, very interesting uh, ideas for how uh, Europe that can protect its citizens could be forged out of the current environment and Nick actually has a, a more upbeat piece in that as well so you'll get to see the two sides of, of, uh, of Nick's personality as well as a great piece by Ulrika in that and there's even a little piece by me in it so there you go um, It's been a great discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you head to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts, you will find links to all the publications that we've mentioned. And we hope that you'll also let everyone you know know about it as well by writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, tweeting about it. And above all, by heading straight to the iTunes ratings and review page and leaving us a review. And if you send me a copy of it, at mark.leonard at Your name could be entered in a competition to win one of the very last ECFR End of the World podcast mugs which have the amazing slogan, the end is near, but the coffee is hot, as well as a beautiful physical depiction of ECFR and of a world about to end.
2: They are brilliant, absolutely. I still haven't got mine, so now I really, I, I need to write a review or something to get my mug before they're all gone.
0: And you will be the envy of your friends and your colleagues and your, all of your acquaintances if, uh, if you have a mug like this on your on your desk. So... That brings us to the end of this podcast from Nick Whitney, Ulrike Franke and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbreusch and our newly returned editor is Katarina Botel-Azirado who has just come back after a period of maternity leave and we're very happy to have you here again.